I love a good train wreck. I mean, who doesn't? One day, historian and podcaster Steve Guerra, host of the Beyond the Big Screen podcast, asked me what I call the big question. Of all the train wrecks you've studied so far, who is on your top 10 list of all time? It gave us the opportunity to better define a historical train wreck, and it got us thinking about who wasn't on the list and who should be. Longtime listeners of this show may not be surprised at the list, but then again, maybe you will. I hope you enjoy part one of Top 10 Train Wrecks. Welcome back to Beyond the Big Screen. I am very excited to be joined by our guest today, Stacy Roberts, host of History's Train Wrecks. And we're going to talk about some of the greatest events in history that didn't quite go the way they were supposed to. Stacy, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Oh, and thank you so much for coming on. I'm really excited about this. Now, Stacy, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and your podcast? Well, at, as you may have surmised, I'm a history nerd. I got a master's degree in history, and I um, never used it because I had to go make money. And um, fast forward 20-something years, and I was in a place where I felt like I wasn't learning anything where I was just going to work and doing my thing. And I started picking up biographies because I figured they're the, you know, it's easy to focus on a single character and follow them through. And along the way, I noticed these little funny side stories about things that happened to these historical figures. And I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. But then I noticed a much larger trend where there were certain historical figures, like names that you've heard of, who seemed to have everything going for them. And it almost seemed like at the last minute they crashed and burned. And I and I started looking for more of them in throughout history. And I found quite a lot. And I was like, what is wrong with these guys? And the answer is they're train wrecks. Today, we're going to count down the top 10 train wrecks in history, according to Stacy. Uh, but before we jump in, can you quickly define a historical train wreck? The, the best way to define a historical train wreck is to look at a historical figure who is on a trajectory all the way to the top. So whatever field that they're in, whatever the top is, they're they're ready to go. Um, and there seems like there's no obstacles in their way. So to give you an example, a Douglas MacArthur, who in 1941 was the highest ranking general in the army. 10 years later, he's fired and retired. And Dwight Eisenhower, who was a nobody in 1941, is a hero and, and the president of the United States. And so when you look at that, you say, well, what happened, right? Um, so the only way I can really explain what a train wreck is, is by example. So, you know, I have to, I have to say, well, look at this guy, like Aaron Burr, and look at this other guy. And they were neck and neck. Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr were neck and neck. Jefferson's got monuments, Burr's in disgrace. They tied for the presidency. So what happened? How, how did Burr fail so big? that his name is Mud and Jefferson has statues built to him. All right, well, let's dig right in. We're going to start at 10, work our way up to number one. There's going to be a couple of shockers and there's people, so you better uh, make sure you stay tuned. Let's talk about number 10, Richard Nixon, historical train wreck. Yes, Richard Nixon. So if you look at my trajectory of a train wreck, Nixon was one of the youngest vice presidents in history. He was vice president to the greatest hero of the 20th century that we had, Dwight Eisenhower. Um, he really, all he really had to do was not screw it up. And he did. And so you know, there was the checkers scandal. Um, 
where he made this speech where somebody gave him a dog and they thought it was a, a, a bribe of some kind. And he did, I am not a crook. And when it came time to debate John F. Kennedy, he, he came across badly. He didn't listen to his advisors. And not listening to his advisors, I would say, is the number one fatal flaw of Richard Nixon. Because at every point where he failed, there was an advisor saying, here's what you do. Go do this and you'll be fine. Um, right before his resignation, two days before his resignation, Henry Kissinger went into the Oval Office and said, Mr. President, go on TV tonight, address the nation, take responsibility and apologize. And you will not have to resign. You will not get impeached. And he wasn't wrong because in order for Nixon to be impeached and removed from office, it would take Republicans to do that. All Nixon had to do strategically was give Republicans enough cover to let him off the hook. And Kissinger's telling him how to do it. And, you know, Henry Kissinger, smartest man in the world, listened to him. And Nixon simply couldn't do it. Uh, in 1960, his advisors said, you know, wear a different color suit and put the makeup on because you're going on TV. And he's like, I don't want no part of that. And people who listened to the debate thought he won. People who watched it thought he bombed. And so at each step in the, in the progress of Nixon's ultimate train wreck, he had plenty of opportunities to get things back on track. And in spite of his, his mess ups, he was very successful as a politician. Once he got in the Oval Office, he won in 1972 in a landslide. He was on top of the world. Two years later, he's flying home in a helicopter and leaving Gerald Ford behind. That to me is that that to me defines a train wreck. You have everything going for you, and you're the only one responsible when it blows up. He couldn't even really blame anyone else. He's uh, has such an amazing career, Richard Nixon, that he comes out of pretty much nowhere. He almost wins the presidency and there's probably you could say that if there weren't some highly irregular irregularities Chicago. he could have won it he comes out of the he comes back out of the political wilderness wins wins some landslides and he has this just enormous crash and he almost i mean i wouldn't say he quite reformed himself at the end but he at least dusted the mud off a little bit but boy like you said he really did put himself into it he stepped in front of the train a hundred percent well, and there's an interesting story Bill Clinton tells that when Bill Clinton was in the White House, he would talk to Richard Nixon every day because of all the living former presidents, he thought Nixon was the smartest and that Nixon knew best how to run a White House. And so he would call up Richard Nixon and say, here's my schedule for the day. Is this stuff I really should be doing? And Nixon would take it apart and be like, do this, don't do that. And, and Clinton said, he really benefited from that advice. And he was really sad when Nixon died because he couldn't call him anymore. So Nixon had many great qualities, lots of them. And he was his own worst enemy, which to me defines a train wreck. Presidential on-the-job training by Richard Nixon. <laughs> of all people. Now, number nine, I think number nine is going to be a shocker to people. Theodore Roosevelt. Yes. As a as a historical train wreck, I, we have to hear this one. So, I uh, T Teddy Roosevelt is one of my favorites, and he always makes the top five or top ten list of American presidents. And there's lots of great reasons for it. Um, I think he overcame a lot of adversity early on in his life. He suffered a lot of losses, and he basically made himself into Teddy Roosevelt. And 
he was a smart man. He was a, a brilliant guy, well-read, a great writer, a historian. He said if he couldn't be president, he'd much rather be a history teacher. And so I, there's a lot to admire about Teddy Roosevelt, right up until election night, 1904. And he won the presidency in his own right after uh, taking over after William McKinley was assassinated in 1901. And without consulting anyone, he told the reporters in the Oval Office that he will not be a candidate in any future presidential election. He will not run again because he said, Washington, George Washington established the two-term rule. He said that the uh, finishing out McKinley's term was one, and this one that he just won would be two, and then he would be out. Huge mistake. Only because getting Theodore Roosevelt to stop (laughs) is one of the hardest things in American politics to do, because he was a fountain of energy. And he, he he always had ideas and big visions and big plans. And if he had run for president again in 1908, had won because he would have won. He could have been done at the end of that. He could have said, okay, I had two elective terms of office. I've done everything I can do. There's no unrealized potential for me. And Teddy Roosevelt's a guy who spent his life looking for unrealized potential that he could aspire to and succeed at. So not running for president again or promising not to run for president again, basically split him in two. And the rest of his life from 1908 forward was Teddy Roosevelt not being the kind of TR that we know and love. He was, he was out of step. And it felt like, it, like a parallel universe in which you know, he should have won the presidency. He should have finished out his term. He should have retired, wrote books, and taught history in a college as America's premier elder statesman. Because he didn't do that, he was unfulfilled. And he came back in, 19, uh, in 1912. I mean, as soon as Taft took over, Teddy started criticizing him. They had a huge falling out, split the Republican Party. In 1912, Teddy tries to get the nomination, fails, starts his own party, splits the Republican vote, and makes Woodrow Wilson president. None of that had to happen. And that promise that he made in 1904 and not being able to take it back, you know, if in if in 1907, he had said, you know what, there's still more to do. In America, I think I still have more work to do as your president. I really didn't serve two terms. That pledge I made on election night was the heat of the moment. And I feel like I owe it to the country to run again. He could have done that. And I think I think everybody would have said, well, okay then, and give him another shot at it. So the that was the easy way. And he didn't take the easy way. He took the hard way. And he was in conflict about it for the rest of his life. You think that in, in Theodore Roosevelt's case, that it really was a, a personal conflict that he didn't know if he wanted to run or if he didn't want to run? Like if he didn't know that this next step in his life really should be being more president or retiring, that that restlessness inside of him couldn't carry him forward. That's a good point, because, you know, the ambassador to the United States from Britain once said, you realize that Theodore Roosevelt is a six-year-old boy, right? <laughs> he's, he's bursting with energy. He's impulsive. Um, and the only thing that really kept him in check was being president. Like there were times where he was like, well, I'm president, so I probably better behave myself because otherwise he'd be swimming naked in the Potomac. Um, uh, so I think, I'm not sure what his, I'm not sure he had a plan. And that's that's where I think he goes off the rails is, the, the pledge in 1904 was an impulse. 
it was it came from a good place. He said, I'm trying to adhere to presidential tradition and precedent, but I don't think he thought it through. And when it became clear to him that things were not going to go well once he left the White House, it became a problem to solve, and he's a problem solver, and he couldn't let it go. And then the other thing that he did in my episode on uh, that particular episode, I I like to give my listeners tips. And so here's a tip. If you're trying not to run for president, don't go on a European tour where people will treat you like you're still president. After he, in 1908 or 1909, after TAF was inaugurated, he went to Africa on safari, and then he did a swing through Europe, and he was mobbed by crowds. And when, when that happens to you, I think it gets, it gets your, your blood back up. You're like, wow, I really like this, and I want to do this some more. And as he's talking to other world leaders, you know, Germany's rearming at this point. He knows there's trouble on the horizon, and he thinks he's the guy to fix it. And so he comes back from that European tour, and when he gets to New York, there are a million people waiting to see him. And so Taft can't get 10 people in a room, but Roosevelt has millions of people. And so he looks at that, and the people around him look at that and say, you could be president if you just wanted it. And I think it made him want it. And he couldn't, he couldn't face it. But then he really, he tripped on his, on his own self, basically, by not uh, dealing with it, that the Republicans didn't want him and starting his own party. And he kind of, again, he dragged himself through the, his own mud. Right. He, so the thing that he wasn't, you know, so like he was a, a very clever politician at times. But when he wasn't clever, he was horrendously naive. And he, like in, when they were trying to draft him to be vice president in 1900, he said, well, I don't want that job because nobody wanted that job and they can't make me take it. And he didn't realize that at conventions, it's the party bosses who run things. In the general election, that's where the people come in and, and lift you up on their shoulders. So the, the mechanics of backroom politics in the early 20th century were not his thing. He was not good at that. He could go out and get crowds. He could get millions of people to vote for him, but you got to get the nomination first. And that was where he dropped the ball. And what he failed to realize is establishment Republicans didn't want anything to do with him. They didn't want him in the White House. The, the business leaders of the United States thought he was a madman who was going to regulate them to death, tax them to death, and they didn't want Teddy Roosevelt in the White House. And if there was any way to do it, and he gave it to them. They said, he promised not to run. What's he doing? So we're, we're not going to give him the Republican nomination, which was up to 25 guys, because we don't want him in the White House. And he said he wasn't going to run. So we're done, right? And, and that's Teddy shooting himself in the foot. Now, our next one, uh, you're number eight on the list. We have to throw it into reverse a few millennia. And we're going to talk about Cato the Younger. Yes. So my, my fields of study, the, the periods of history that I really like, our ancient Rome, the Revolutionary War, American period, Civil War, early 20th century, and World War II. So in my show, you know, we're, we're moving along, we're talking about, you know, people that Americans have heard of, and then suddenly I drop back to ancient Rome. So when I study history, I'm particularly fond of curmudgeons. I love the Adams family, John Adams, John Quincy, Henry Adams, because they're so uptight. Um, and Cato the Younger and Cato the Elder were they were that equivalent in ancient Rome. These were the guys who followed the rules and they wanted to make sure everybody else followed the rules and they were really uptight. And so in each of the cases, in each, each Cato ran into a nemesis who was their total opposite. 
Cato the Elder uh, had to deal with Scipio Africanus, who won the Punic Wars and defeated Carthage. And Scipio liked to party and spend money, and Cato was an uptight stick in the mud and said, you can't. His great-great-grandson, Cato the Younger, ran headfirst into Julius Caesar. And he was the guy who said, everything you're doing as dictator or presumed dictator or member of the triumvirate that rules Rome is counter to the Republican values that Rome was founded on. Rome didn't like kings or anybody who pretended to be a king. And that's what you're doing. And I'm going to get in your way. Well, big mistake, because at this point in Roman history, the tide had turned. There was no more democracy. We were moving into empire. And he didn't realize which way the winds were blowing, which is another symptom of being a train wreck is you don't really understand what's happening around you and you get punished for it. I wonder if somebody like Cato the Younger, would you say he's more of a train wreck because he just he couldn't deal with that things had changed and he was completely inflexible to the new times? Right. Yes, because he, him and his great grandpa, Cato the Elder, were conservatives. They wanted things to be the way things had always been. They idolized the misty past of Rome, where the Senate, you know, ruled ruled the 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 city and there were no kings. And if you held power in Rome, it was for a year and then you were out. You went back home to your farm. And those were the values that the Catos believed would make Rome great. And toward the end of the Republic, you know, the Senate was corrupt. They were coin operated. You could buy a senator, um, which meant you could buy the government of Rome. And so these kings, foreign kings, were always just sending truckloads of cash to Rome to get enough senators to give them what they want. And Cato, you know, he didn't really object to that. He only really got upset when dictators came along and said, you know what, the Senate's useless and we're going to take over. And um, but you're right. He couldn't face it. He, he, he could see that the future, if Caesar got his way, the future for Rome was autocratic and not democratic, and he, wasn't, he couldn't abide it. Do you think he maybe, Cato the Younger, he kind of goes on the knife edge between a tragic hero and a train wreck? Yes, and that's the thing about, about all of these historical train wrecks is that there are so many things about them that you like. And it's almost like when you're watching a horror movie and you know the the heroine is going upstairs in the dark to the locked room and you're like don't go in there. A lot of times studying these train wrecks you're like oh Cato man don't do that and he does it and you go oh well that's not going to work out for you. How do you think Cato could have reeled it back stepped off of the tracks so to speak? Exile. Exile I think was the only way that he could accommodate what was happening in Rome. Uh, same way that Cicero did, because he and Cicero were contemporaries of a sort. And once you realize that you're not you're not going to survive this transition and that you can't stop it, time to get yourself a cabbage farm in Croatia and just live out the rest of your days. We couldn't keep train wrecks on the tracks without you. Please visit support.historystrainwrecks.com for all the ways you can help keep train wrecks on the tracks. This next one is a really interesting one. Philip II of Spain. I don't know how many people would necessarily put Philip II of Spain on any of their lists of any sort. So I'm I'm definitely interested to hear about his train wreck. Down. Well, his his train wreck was a boat wreck, the the Armada, right? Um, 
he again as as the the king of spain and lots of other associated territories he was one of the premier monarchs in europe and he couldn't mind his own business was really philip's problem um also spain has a history since isabel and ferdinand of being a bastion of catholicism and so if you're the king of spain you are the premier catholic monarch in europe and he lived at a time where all this protestantism was cropping up and much like cato in rome he couldn't abide that so he was originally uh married or betrothed to mary queen of scots in england and she was deposed and philip didn't want england to be anglican he didn't want them to be protestant he thought england should be catholic and he thought he was the guy to do it so what got me interested in philip was i read um a biography of him and it seemed like he went to queen elizabeth the first and said well mary's out so i'm going to marry you now and england will thereby be catholic and i'll be you know king of england in addition to all the other territories that i'm in charge of and elizabeth said nothing doing and he said okay well i'm going to send a fleet of ships then now it didn't exactly go like that historically that's just a fun way to tell the story <laughs> there was a lot more going on but philip had a certain sense of inevitability about him like thanos and so he believed that he was destined to be the catholic monarch of europe and that it was his job to make sure that catholicism stayed where it was originally put and he couldn't take no for an answer which again something these guys have in common is they just can't stand it and when he was sending the armada to england he picked a commander with no naval experience and he would because he was like don't worry this is all going to work out and whenever i hear that i get ready for a train wreck i think what's interesting i i always come to bat for the spanish i i in this period this um this golden age of spain i don't necessarily go to bat for the leaders the habsburgs because they're pretty train wrecky yes. but i think that sometimes with with some of these train wrecks do you think that it's a lot of its perspective that somebody like queen elizabeth the 1st she gets that so, she gets this uh whole aura put around her that you know this is great 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 but then there was also a lot of failures under her uh the, the roanoke colony fails there's a, a lot of financial problems she doesn't have she has zero succession plan pretty much and there's also a failed english armada that we don't talk a lot about i think that those are two people that are really uh, philip the second and queen elizabeth are they really play well off of each other right well and that's and that's what um you know i always try to look at the train wrecks in juxtaposition to somebody else right so i would always i always compare eisenhower to macarthur and i always i always put aaron burr up against thomas jefferson um because wherever there's a train wreck there's a counterpart to the train wreck and what you find is that they're not opposites more often than not they are astoundingly similar and that they follow similar trajectories and at one point the train wreck crashes and burns and the counterpart succeeds or or at least appears to succeed or is given credit for succeeding we have a much better impression of elizabeth the first than we do philip the second right the same way that we have much better impression of thomas jefferson than we do aaron burr but maybe that's just you know at the last minute the person they were running against fell down yeah that's really that's really interesting to 
the juxtaposition and a little bit of a different perspective, a little different ending. And there you have it. One person crashes and burns. One person, like you've said, it has statues to them all over the place. Right. And, and when you look at what made the difference, it's a very thin, it seems like a very thin razor's edge to use your phrase from before. It just seems like it wasn't a huge gap between Elizabeth I and Philip II. They both had things going for them. They both had a string of failures. You'd almost put them at parity, but Philip somehow comes off worse. I wonder if it's tra- trajectory too. England is ascendant. Uh, you know, there's a there's a little bit of retracement along the way, but they're pretty much on the way up. Where this is kind of the point where Spain is going down the going down the cliff. They're they've had a lot of ups and they kind of are way going down at this point. Right. Well, and 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 some of that, you know, you might attribute to Philip II because he put Spain in debt. Where you know all that money coming from the New World didn't didn't keep him out of out of the hole, and his insistence on Catholic or nothing meant that he, you know, Spain is seventy percent Catholic, and it meant that other religions knew they weren't welcome in Spain and they didn't go there. And so, at a certain point, you cut off an influx of talent or vision, and so some of the decisions that Philip II made were. All right, now number six, we go to Huey Long. Yeah, Huey Long. Um, he's a character. So he started from nothing. He was poor uh, in Louisiana, which by itself was a fairly poor state. And he tried law school and he became a master salesman. And I think at some point he realized that he had a power to persuade people with his folksy charm. And he ran for, and he also at the same time figured out that real power is local at least in Louisiana, and that there were certain state commissions that you could get on where you really had a lot more pull than the elected officials. Like he ended up on some transportation board where he got to set railroad rates. Um, he was involved in a, in a commission that was able to set oil prices. And he realized that's where the power is and that's where the money is. But he had a knack for persuading the downtrodden people of Louisiana that he was going to fix things for them. And he did. So he got himself elected governor. He built 10,000 miles of roads in Louisiana. Uh, During the Depression, Louisiana had more uh, road workers than any other state in the union. He established uh, literacy schools for adults, taught 100,000 people how to read. He gave out free textbooks to every school child in the state. So his heart was in the right place. And he was a guy that you could see getting things done. His downfall, he was not great with with people one-on-one. He's one of these guys who he he can interact with a crowd brilliantly, but he can't have a conversation with one guy that he needs something from. He always rubbed people the wrong way. And the more success he had, the more he believed that he earned it instead of it being a, a factor of luck or popular uh, um, support. And um, so he simply started to grab more power for himself in Louisiana. He appointed relatives to the all the top state jobs. He appointed his supporters all the top state jobs. Um, he championed uh, a share the wealth program where he wanted to cap fortunes in America at $10 million. And he wanted to limit incomes to a million dollars a year. And he wanted to basically take the rest of it and give it to the people of the country. He wanted every person in America to get $2,500 a year. 
which during the depression makes him a hero. And so FDR called Huey Long the most dangerous man in America. And FDR being FDR, he wasn't so much worried about America as he was worried about himself. Huey Long decided he was going to run for president in 1936, which was going to be FDR's second term. And because he was to the left of FDR and the depression was still going strong, he was going to split the Democratic vote, which would make a Republican president. And then Huey's plan was he was going to wait four years for that guy, whoever it was, to, to flame out. And then he would just win in 1940. So that kind of tells you who Huey Long is and who Huey's really all about. Because essentially what he was going to do was he was going to consign the country to four years of Republican rule, wait for things to get worse, and then he was going to swoop in and be the hero. Well, if you really care about the country, you skip the four years of bad things and you you do what's right for the country. And Huey just, he wasn't that guy. And as he progressed in his political career, he essentially ran Louisiana like a dictator. And he wrote the laws. He, and he watched them getting passed. And he wasn't a governor anymore at this point. He, was, he got himself elected to the Senate. He appointed his childhood friend to be the governor, essentially, and his because he couldn't succeed himself as governor. So his successor as governor was his friend. And they said he was so compliant that whenever Huey came to town, he would vacate his office so Huey could use his desk. And they said at one point, a leaf blew in the window and he signed it. He was that, he was that compliant. He, he did what he was told. And Huey then basically appointed more supporters to state jobs. He took over more of the apparatus of government and he pushed people to the point where there was a meeting in New Orleans about how are we going to kill Huey Long because it's the only way we're going to get rid of him. And so Huey didn't know when to stop. And that's what made him a train wreck. There was a point at which he was on top and he could have stayed there. He could have consolidated his gains. He could have done more real good, but instead he just kept pushing. And he essentially gave people no choice except to take him out. And if he hadn't been assassinated, he would have been in prison. It, that, it's so fascinating that I think Huey Long is one of those people that not is not well known enough in America that this person was essentially the king dictator. I, I don't even know the right word of Louisiana. And he was a, a, a hair's breadth away from being president. He, he could have easily have been. Sooner or later, I mean, at that point in American history, with the depression being as bad as it was, the American people would vote for somebody who just who promised them things, even if they didn't deliver. And he was promising big things to poor people. And that was most of America. Um, um, he basically made it so that the only way to stop him would be to imprison him or kill him. And I feel like it was Huey who forced people to those two alternatives. There was no, you know, let's get him to resign and go home and retire. There was no there was no vacating politics for him any more than there was for Teddy Roosevelt. There was just never an option for him to just stop or to scale it back. He had to be 100% all the time, which meant that the people who opposed him were not given a lot of ways to deal with him other than the most extreme. Do you think that Roosevelt was against Huey Long because he was afraid of him politically or that he really did think that he was genuinely not good for the country or some mix of that? I think both. There's a story where Huey um, went and had dinner with FDR after the 1932 election um, because he helped FDR get elected in 32. And personally, they just didn't hit it off. And FDR's mom, who was a great influence on him, said, 
I hope we never have that guy over for dinner anymore. <laughs> and most of it was because Huey was a great equalizer. He didn't care about aristocratic Americans who happened to be president of the United States. He treated everybody the same way. And it usually wasn't good. And like I told you, he wasn't great in one-on-one. And so, you know, he would talk and FDR would just ignore him because he couldn't stand him. And so I think he didn't like him personally, but I think he also knew that Huey was promising things to get elected that he couldn't deliver on and that he wouldn't really try. And so there was a sense that FDR thought Huey was bad for the country. Just a a fascinating, fascinating character in American history. Now, the next is in this general time period, Herbert Hoover. I get a lot of flack about Herbert Hoover, and here's why. Herbert Hoover, before he became president, was one of the best known men in the world. He had handled food relief after World War I. He handled flood relief in 1927 when the Mississippi River flooded. He was perceived as a guy who could get things done, and he usually delivered. When the Mississippi River flooded in 1927, Hoover was Secretary of Commerce, okay? That's his job in the administration. Eight governors, I think it was eight governors along the Mississippi, begged President Calvin Coolidge. They said, we need Herbert Hoover to handle flood relief. And Coolidge is like, well, he's the Secretary of Commerce. I mean, there's no, that doesn't even go together. And they said, but we know Hoover can get things done and we want him to do it. And he did. And so it was almost a natural thing that he would be elected president because he was perceived as just being this great man. And again, there was not a lot of evidence to the contrary. His only mistake, as I see it, was that when the depression started, he appeared to be tone deaf to suffering. And he didn't realize, I think, the scope of the depression. Or more likely, he believed that every problem could eventually be solved because that had been his experience. Oh, Europe is starving after World War I. We can fix that. And then he did. And so when you have that kind of track record, you're like, oh, uh, 12% unemployment and, and bread lines and, and homeless people, we can fix that because that's what Herbert Hoover did. I, I, you know, I fix things. But then at the same time, he said, I don't think the president has any business interfering in the economy. And what he didn't seem to understand was at that point in the depression, the only entity left that could build things and feed people was government. The private sector was was taking a huge hit. I mean, they were losing billions of dollars. Everybody was hiding under their mattresses. Government was the only institution left standing of any capability. And Hoover said, I'm not going to pull that lever. And people are like, well, hey, you know, we're starving out here. There are people selling their children and giving their kids away because they can't feed them. And when you look to the president of the United States, who in the early 20th century, ever since Teddy Roosevelt, was revered as a popular hero. You look to this person who you expect to get the answers from, and he's saying, yeah, it's not really my job. And so in the next election, they made sure it wasn't. Hate him or loathe him, he was a a fix-it kind of guy. And he, Roosevelt, in a lot of ways, ran more, I guess, more conservatively or more to the right, you might say, of Herbert Hoover. I think that that's maybe with Herbert Hoover is that he got himself painted in a way that he just wasn't. And that's what I find so fascinating. People hate him, but they hate him for all the wrong reasons. That's absolutely right. So I read his autobiography shortly after I started looking into him as a train wreck. And I said, you know, he wasn't wrong about a lot of things, but his timing was no good. And again, much like Cato the Younger and Teddy Roosevelt and some of these other guys, you have to be good 
at seeing what's really going on in the country. And FDR had a knack for it. And Herbert Hoover just kind of didn't. Hoover, and really Hoover's main flaw in that regard was he had principles and he stuck to them. FDR was a bit more fluid, shall we say. And so uh, FDR was a, was a selfish guy. And he knew that this was his opportunity. And the more he could jump up and down on Herbert Hoover, the more likely he was to win the presidency. And he did it. And then when he won, and this was back when you win the election in November and you don't get inaugurated till March, that's a long time for an interregnum. And FDR absolutely refused to do anything to even appear like he was helping Herbert Hoover's last few days in office. He wouldn't meet with him. He wouldn't coordinate on policy. He said, when I'm in charge, I'll start fixing things, which again, remember Huey Long was going to throw the country to somebody else for four years and let it go bad before he could swoop in and be a hero. And I think FDR did a little bit of that between November 1932 and March 1933. So between the two of them, I almost feel like Herbert Hoover was a better man, was a better person than FDR. But the, the situation in America at the time meant that FDR was the guy you had to be more like in order to beat and Hoover wouldn't bring himself to do. But in every other respect, Hoover is an admirable figure. He is a great historical figure who essentially made one mistake. I, from everything that I've heard about Hoover, he just never seemed like presidential material. Put him in charge of something and he'll get it done. I mm-hmm. think there was even a point where FDR brought him in for something. Yeah. And I can't remember exactly Truman, what it Truman was. did. Uh, uh, Truman brought Hoover in in a reorganization of the government in the 1940s after the war. So like the Department of Defense, where it used to be the Secretary of War, um, the Presidential Succession Act, all the things that happened in 1947 was Herbert Hoover analyzing government, looking at how everything worked and saying, here's a better way to do this in light of changing times. So you're absolutely right about Hoover. If you could give Hoover a hammer, he could go, he'd go build things. But when you put him above that, where he's not laying his hands on anything and he just has to think all the time and make decisions out of intangible things, that was not his strong suit. You could say the same thing about William Howard Taft, who during the Teddy Roosevelt administration, Taft was his right-hand man. He was Secretary of War, Governor General of the Philippines. Whenever there was a problem, Roosevelt sent William Howard Taft to fix it, and he did. But when you make him president and there's nobody above him to tell him what to do, and he, and he's there's nobody else around. That's where guys like this fail. And I think that William Howard Taft and Herbert Hoover both failed in that regard because they weren't suited to be president. They were suited to be the fixer. This might be an interesting time to stop. How does someone like William Howard Taft not quite make your list? Or would you even put him as an actual train wreck? No, I, William Howard Taft was a nice guy. And he really just was in over his head as president, right? He wanted to be chief justice of the Supreme Court since he was 23 years old. And what happened was his wife had greater ambitions than that. And so he was offered a Supreme Court seat three times before he became president. And his wife made him turn it down every time because she said, you can be president when Teddy's done. He never should have listened to her, but he was a nice guy. So whoever was talking to William Howard Taft was his new best friend. And so he needed somebody like Teddy Roosevelt to point him and direct him on his own. He just, he could change his mind every five minutes. Um, When Teddy Roosevelt died, William Howard Taft went to the cemetery and when he was the last guy there after everybody was gone and he cried like a baby, he really would just was a sweet guy. He couldn't be the number one guy in charge. 
And so I don't think he's a train wreck because he always tried to do the right thing. And he never really self-sabotaged the way these other guys did. What happened was, you know, if, if you're a victim of sorts, if things happen to you that are beyond your control, you're not really a train wreck. Based on a true story, you've seen that before, usually in the trailer for a new historical movie about a war, a conquest, a daring mission, a dangerous journey, or the life of a towering figure in history. But how true is it? The Beyond the Big Screen podcast takes you behind the scenes of movies based on historical events to show you how close the filmmakers came to the truth or how far they veered from it. Check out Beyond the Big Screen podcast at your favorite podcast platform. I hope you enjoyed the first part of Top 10 Trainwrecks. This is a great subject for debate and discovery, so I'd love to hear your input on this list so far. Leave a comment on the History's Trainwrecks Facebook page or join the History's Trainwrecks Facebook group. You can Twitter to at History's Train and Instagram, whatever that is, to History's Trainwrecks. I'm looking forward to your thoughts. On our next episode, we count down to the number one train wreck of all time. Stay tuned for Top 10 Trainwrecks, Part 2.